Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would. This evening, we are in our 60th lesson from the book of Ephesians. And we've been proceeding quite slowly because this is a very doctrinal book. Some very good practical things here and good doctrinal things that the Lord wants us to know. And I don't see any need to be in a hurry, but I think there's a real need for us to explore the depths of God's Word and just to find out what it all means as much as we can possibly find out. And I'm sure, as I've told you before, if I started this whole series all over again with chapter 1, I think that I could preach 60 messages on different themes that we find in the book of Ephesians. So this is a very important book. And in the section of Scripture that we want to consider tonight, we're coming back to an old theme that we've rehearsed several times throughout this study. Because one of the things that you can't escape as you study this book is Paul's belief and his teaching of the universal depravity of man. And throughout the book of Ephesians, we've seen here a series of contrasts. Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians of whom and what they were before the Lord came into their lives, before the gospel was preached to them. He talked to them about, has been talking to them about how uh, they should walk in their Christian lives since they've come to salvation in Christ. In chapter 4, Paul ended on a practical note, and he continues that theme throughout uh, in this first part of chapter 5. But one thing that we find Paul doesn't very often do, he doesn't stray very far away from doctrinal preaching and doctrinal roots. So we find practical applications, and we also find doctrinal applications throughout this book. And so as we study this tonight, we see that Paul is very uh, careful to let us know what a sinful condition that man is in And how that he needs to be brought out of that depravity. And there's no way that a Christian or any person could ever live on a higher plane that Paul describes here. Until something is done with his heart. Until a change has taken place. Until God has effected some change in the man. Well, in these next verses, we do see uh, the same thought brought out, contrasting the life of a person before he's born again and the life that he has afterwards. And I don't think that we could really do anything other than just follow the text as Paul gives it, explain it exactly as he says it. And if we have to cover old ground and talk about old issues, then so be it, because Paul thought it was important to emphasize it again. So let's stand, if you would, please. We're going to begin reading tonight in uh, verse number 7 of chapter chapter 5, we'll read down to verse number 14. Ephesians 5, verse number 7. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again that we get to come back to this study in Ephesians. And though we may talk about some old themes... Yet still, Lord, you want to impress this upon our heart, and we need to know these things, and we will truly see how great that salvation is and what you brought us from and where you're taking us. We thank you for that, Lord, and bless in this, this uh, message tonight. Help us to learn something from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In last week's message, I, I finished the, in the end of the message talking about Christians persevering in the faith. 
One of the things that we learned in that message is that it's absolutely necessary for Christians to persevere because for us to turn back and to go back to the old life that we lived, the Bible says that that would incur the wrath of God. Now, one of the things that we have to be so thankful for is that God in His mercy and His grace, He's given us the Holy Spirit to come and live in our hearts. And it is the Holy Spirit Himself that keeps us from final apostasy. The reason that we do persevere is because we do have the Holy Spirit within us. Now, in verse number 7 of our text, Paul says, "...be ye not therefore partakers with them." And he means, don't be deceived by them. Don't, be, uh, don't practice the same things that he calls in verse number 11, the unfruitful works of darkness, because he says, that's what will bring the wrath of God. Now, this evening, I'd like for us to go on, and we want to contrast two very different worlds, two worlds that are as different as night and day. And in fact, that's exactly the way that Paul puts it here in these verses, the difference between light and darkness. This evening, I'd like to do to consider the subject, turn on the lights, because that's exactly what God does in salvation. He turns on the lights so that we can see spiritual things clearly. Now, I'd like to begin our discussion tonight with this point, the shame of ignorance, the shame of ignorance. In verse number 8, Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, "...for ye were sometimes darkness." All of us are familiar with that kind of terminology. We say that someone is in the dark, or when we say that, we mean that that person is ignorant of something. Now, for whatever reasons, they may not have all the facts that they should have. They may not know everything that we want them to know. But for whatever reason it might be, we say that they're in the dark, or they're ignorant of things because they don't know what they should know. But an interesting thing about the way Paul puts this here is that he says, he doesn't say they are in the dark. He says, you were darkness. You were darkness. Now, just as a side note, before we get into that, you'll notice there that Paul uses the word sometimes, for ye were sometimes darkness. We had a question about that word in our Sunday morning forum class a few weeks ago, and it appears that there are some people who think that when he uses this, you were sometimes darkness, that means that you were not always darkness. And in a period that you weren't darkness, that that's the time that you receive Christ as your Savior, and you can do that without supernatural intervention. But let me just say this, that anybody who thinks that that's what this word means here is actually showing their ignorance. People ought to do a little bit more study about this before they make statements like that, because it doesn't take very much discovery to find out that what the word sometimes there means is formally. It means once upon a time, or once you were. So what Paul is saying here is you were once darkness, or formerly you were in the darkness, but now you're no longer darkness. But the important thing that I want to stress here is that he says you were darkness. Not just that you were in the dark, but he says a person without Jesus Christ is actually darkness personified. And what Paul is doing here, he compounds the hopeless condition of a person without Christ. We know that he's already told us back in chapter 2 that, that, that people without Christ are spiritually dead. He said they're uh, outside the covenants of promise and said they were without God. He went on in chapter 4 and he said that their understanding is darkened. And he says that they are in blindness. And now in this chapter, he says they are not in the dark. He says they are dark. And I want you to be aware that when a person is in darkness like this, when he doesn't know the Lord, you can't take a person like that and give him a gospel message and expect that by himself he'll be able to do anything with it. 
by himself, that person will never understand it. He can't do anything with it. And so when the evangelist or the preacher or the professor believes that a person can come to God in saving faith just because he's been given a gospel presentation, he really doesn't understand what Paul is saying here. He doesn't understand how hopeless the condition is. Well, of course, the way that churches today and our evangelists present this is that when they preach the gospel of Christ, they want to give a logical argument. Perhaps they want to give persuasive, eloquent speeches. They might add a lot of begging and pleading into the mix. And they think that if they're able to do that, that they can give enough to the person that suddenly that man will change what he is and he'll come out of that darkness. Well, the problem here is that he's not just darkness, but a person who's in that condition loves the darkness. That's where he wants to stay. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, men love darkness rather than light. So the person is darkness, and the only way that he'll ever understand this, and the only way that he'll ever be saved, is by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel only has power when it's used in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Not until there's specially, particularly, divinely imparted grace will a person ever be able to understand the message of Christ. Well, we can talk about intellectual ignorance, and I think we all understand that you cure intellectual ignorance by giving people the facts. I mean, if somebody doesn't know something, they're in the dark in that sense, and they don't have all the facts, what you do to cure it is just give them the facts. But the problem here with man, it's not just intellectual ignorance. If that was the problem, then in order to be saved, all that we would ever have to do is just give people a Bible, just give them uh, all the facts concerning Christ, help them to learn facts, and then if they know the facts, then they could be saved. But the problem is not intellect here. I mean, you can give people all the facts. The problem is not intellect. The problem is a moral condition. It's far deeper than just intellect. It's what the man morally is. And when we speak about moral darkness, we're not talking about things that a person knows. We're talking about what a person is in his heart, how a person thinks and how he acts. And this particular kind of ignorance is shameful. It is shameful because it causes that person to act contrary to the spiritual light of Christ and spiritual life. So the moral nature of man is what Paul is talking about here. The moral nature of man is darkness and it's against God. Well, since we're talking about a person's nature, people will never act outside of their nature. No more than a lion would go and eat straw or a sheep would eat meat. A man will not act outside of his nature. So a person who's morally corrupt, he can never come to the place where on his own he could develop righteous acts and do holy things in the sight of God. Now I want to show you here tonight uh, as we go through this first part four areas that we're ignorant, that man is ignorant in because of darkness. First of all, he's confused or he's ignorant about the sovereign. And I mean that people are just ignorant of God. And if you listen to people talk for very long, you'll find out just how ignorant they are of God. Listen to people as they interject the name of God into their speech. Do you notice how many people are reverent when they talk about God? Do you notice how people use the name of God in vain? And there may be even some of you in here tonight that are saved people that you may not even give a second thought to saying something like, Oh my God! 
or using the name Jesus when you attack it on to some expression that you have. That's using the name of God irreverently. And what it shows is there's a lack of understanding of who God really is. Because if we really understand who God was, we wouldn't use his name in a flippant manner. We wouldn't use his name in offhand comments. I think that we would be like the Jews of the Old Testament who revered the name of God so much that they wouldn't even speak the name Jehovah. They never said it even in their speech. They might write it, but they would never speak the word Jehovah because they thought that that name was too holy. Then if people really knew God as they ought to know him, they wouldn't live the way that they do. You wouldn't find a bar in this city. You wouldn't be able to go into a store and buy a a pornographic magazine. You wouldn't go to the movies and, and find uh, uh, dirty movies in the cinema. That wouldn't be there. In fact, there wouldn't be a person who would drive by this church on Sunday who wouldn't stop and worship with us because they understand who God is. But people in darkness don't know God. Sometimes it's almost comical to listen to the opinions that people give about God who don't know him. A few weeks ago, I, I mentioned the talk shows on TV. And I've told you what I, what I feel about those things. I mean, uh, I call them cesspools of human degradation because that's what they are. I mean, you watch Oprah Winfrey or, Winfrey or whatever her name is and, and uh, Jerry Springer and Montel and all those people. You watch how they drag people up in front of the stage, every deviant person they can possibly find, and they bring them on. And sometimes they'll sit and they'll talk about their opinions of God. I told you that Oprah said that her God doesn't care if a person is a gay or a lesbian. And I would say, well, then just who is her God? Because her God's not the God of the Bible. She's ignorant of God, and her morally corrupt audience is also ignorant of God. So every time these people open their mouths about God, they declare their ignorance. If you ask one of these people, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? They don't know the answer to the question. And the proof that they don't is they spend all their time pursuing the things of this world and never go after the things of God. So they're ignorant of him. So they're confused about the sovereign. Secondly, I think that we can say that they're confused about self. People that are in the dark cannot see themselves clearly. When I get up in the morning, when you get up in the morning, I assume that you go into the bathroom and you turn on the lights and you look in the mirror. And when I go in the bathroom and flip on those lights, I notice my hair standing straight up when I get up. I got those little sleep boogers in my eyes and and, uh, stubble all over my face. And I realize by looking in the mirror and turning on the light that something needs to change here. I need to fix some things. But what if I get up and I don't turn on the light? Well, I may get the impression that things are all right. I, I look pretty good. So I could get dressed in the dark and put on one green sock and one red sock, put on an old dirty shirt and leave the house like I slept on Skid Row all night long. Well, you know, that's just like a person who's in spiritual darkness. He looks at himself, but he doesn't see things clearly. And so he thinks that he's pretty good looking. He doesn't really need to change anything. And he goes to work thinking, I'm the best looking guy on the block. And you know something? When he gets to work, he may be indeed be the best-looking person there because all the rest of them got dressed in the dark too. Now, the problem is he doesn't really understand where he needs to compare what he is or what he needs to compare himself to. So the man who is in darkness, he compares himself and looks what everybody else is doing, and he sees that, well, I'm not such a bad guy after all compared to those people. And so by comparing himself to others, he gains a favorable impression of himself. 
problem here is he's looking at the wrong standard. The standard is God's standard. And that standard is a standard of righteousness. And friends, you need to know this, that God's standard demands absolute perfection. He doesn't allow one hair out of place. He doesn't allow a stain in the fold or the crease of your pants that you can't even see without close inspection. He doesn't allow any imperfections. You must be perfect. And the plain truth of the matter is nobody measures up. Nobody measures up to God's standard of righteousness. Now, you see, here's the whole problem when we're dealing with behavioral issues. Churches today concentrate on changing the conduct of people and uh, changing conduct. If we, if we do that, then that'll make the person all right. Well, the problem is you're still, de- still dealing with the person who has wickedness in his heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So the heart is the thing that has to be changed. And that takes place in the new birth when we trust Christ as Savior. Then the third thing that he's confused about, he's confused about Scripture. He may be a very religious person. He may understand the Ten Commandments and do his very best to live by those commandments. He may be a person who attends church regularly. He takes communion. He may confess his sin on a, on a weekly basis to a priest in a phone booth. He can do all of that. But when he looks into the Word of God... He doesn't have understanding. He keeps trying to correct himself by doing good things and and trying to be pleasing with God by good things that he does. And he hasn't yet realized that the Bible says, stop doing, because what's necessary for salvation has already been done. Jesus Christ did everything necessary for salvation. You don't need to do anything. Religion is really the biggest enemy of man. It's the biggest enemy that we have. When a person has religion, he's the hardest person to reach. It's hard to convince him that that he's not already all right, that everything is just fine. Because what the devil has done is he's made friends with religion. And he's not interested really in making atheists out of people. Religion serves him just fine, thank you. He's, He's just fine with religion. So the devil's not trying to make anybody an atheist really. Religion is his ally. Well, here's the reason. It's because if a person is satisfied with religion... And if he's satisfied with all of his self-help techniques, then he doesn't really feel that he needs anything else. And so his natural inclination to be religious has been satisfied. And he lives that way without ever coming out of the dark. Well, that leads him to his next problem. And that is he's also confused or he's ignorant about salvation. He's totally in the dark concerning salvation. Now, either he believes that salvation is not needed... And really, that's not even a common belief. He either believes salvation is not needed or he believes that salvation has already come. If you take a poll among Americans, you'll find out that most Americans believe in God and most believe in heaven and hell. In 2004, Gallup, the Gallup poll said that 81% of Americans believe in heaven, 70% believe in hell. There was an earlier Gallup poll that said that 77% percent of Americans are optimistic that their chances for heaven are either good or excellent. And the same poll said that there are few people who see themselves as hell-bound sinners. Where do you think people get that kind of information? That, That does not come from the Bible. So they believe in heaven and hell, and although salvation is is needed, and they admit it, they just think that they've already got it. They think they're already saved. So they're in the dark about salvation. 
Well, I'll say it better. I'll say it the way Paul did. Not in the dark. They are darkness. And what I'm trying to tell you is that when you take a person who has this much confusion, when he has those four things wrong, he completely misunderstands all of that. How are you going to take that person and just give him a gospel message and expect that he's going to believe it and he'll come out of that darkness? It's not going to happen. It's because he thinks he's all right already. And this is exactly what Paul means. This is a huge problem. It can't be solved any other way then God has to reach down and he has to pluck that person out of the mire and the muck of sin and raise him up and make him something new. Now, most people are teaching today, change yourself and believe. Defy this nature that's in you, the nature that loves darkness and just become a believer. Express a seed of faith that's already in you because you can do it. And the truth is you can't do it. You can't do it. You're not in darkness. You are darkness. And he's teaching us here that this light does not come from within. There has to be something outside of us that makes a change. I can tell you who it is. His name is Jesus. He's the only one that's going to make a change. And when Jesus comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't wish it to be so. Only God can make this be so. So you see, here's the problem. It's a moral problem. It's moral darkness. And verse number 12 says, It's a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Now he's talking about all these past sins we talked about last week, the things in the earlier verses. He said, It's a shame to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. So Paul's shedding a little bit different light on the problem here, no pun intended. But he's telling us that this is a moral darkness that is so reprehensible that not only shouldn't we do the things that he mentions, he says you should not even talk about them. Don't speak about them. You know, I've often wondered how can you warn people about these things when Paul says don't even talk about it. And I've seen this happen in churches. I've noticed sometimes in fundamental preaching, and it's sad to say, but sometimes there is almost a purient desire There's almost like a glee to bring sex and immorality to light and to talk about those things. Well, Paul says, even if we speak about it, I think he's telling us we ought to be very subdued when we talk about these things. There's a lot of it we ought to keep out of mixed company, I believe. And so there's a lot of things you won't hear me preach from the pulpit with men and women present because we ought not to talk about some of these things. Now, I have seen preachers that preach on the family And in the midst of their sermons, they tell bedroom stories. Bedroom stories. I would never do that. I even knew a preacher once who said, I have to go to pornographic movies to do research. I don't think he'd find Paul there, and he's not going to find Jesus there. I'm sure of that. So this is what he's talking about. Things that are so heinous, so evil, we don't even talk about them. But now let's go to the other side of this. We're talking about darkness and the shame of ignorance. But now let's talk about the spirit of enlightenment. In the 8th verse, he says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I want you to notice the same construction in the phrase. You were sometimes, or formerly, you were in darkness, but now ye are light. He doesn't say you are in the light. He says ye are light. You are light. Not just that you've been thrown out into the light, and the light shining on you. No, no, no. Now you have become light. You're a new person, and you are light. Well, since that's true, 
How would that change and how would that light manifest itself? You walk in the light as Christ is in the light. How's that possible? Well, just as the children of darkness have a nature that's morally and totally corrupt, a person who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God has a nature that's been totally renewed. And so the new nature, the renewed nature, allows him to walk in the light of God. Now, as we talk about this, I want us to notice first the correction of faculties. All of these things that we've been talking about, they are corrected in the new birth. Now, we started talking about ignorance. Darkness is equated with ignorance. And the light is the same thing as knowledge and as renewal. So, you say, when a person has seen the light, what do you mean by that? Well, now, they've been illuminated. They know something now. They see things differently. And for a person who's been regenerated, all of these effects in him, all of these things that depravity has done to him, those things have been renewed. So now we want to talk about the ways that a spiritual person has been renewed by his faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, he's renewed in his intellect. The intellect is renewed. Now we have to deal with the intellect because uh, no one comes to salvation without knowing some things. Now, I said just a moment ago, we cannot say that knowledge of facts will ever save anybody. We've already discussed that. But we also have to say that nobody is saved without knowledge of the facts. You're going to have to know something. You can't memorize things and that'll save you. But when you learn the facts and your heart has been changed by those facts, then you can be saved. So nobody is saved with the facts, but nobody is saved without the facts. The gospel message is absolutely necessary. And that's what God uses to bring faith and salvation to a person. When the gospel is preached, God uses those facts, but in a very special way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. So God uses the intellect by presenting the facts... But he does more than just present the facts. He gives the facts meaning. Now, he causes that person to understand the facts and to make all the proper implications according to the facts. Now, this is why that you can give a person facts. You can tell him about heaven and hell. And still, with those facts, that person may remain in unbelief. He believes there is a heaven and there's a hell. But what he hasn't done, he hasn't assimilated the information so that he has any sense of urgency at all that he needs to do something about it. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he takes those facts and he makes the implications real to the person so that the only rational decision that a person will ever make when he has the facts and when the Holy Spirit has used the facts to enlighten him, the only rational decision he will ever make is to trust Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Now, we maintain this, that when the Holy Spirit effectually works in a person by making his mind illumined, enlightened to the facts so that he understands the facts, he will unfailingly come to God in repentance and faith. You know what we call that? Irresistible grace. It's the doctrine of irresistible grace. But that's one of the things that there are many Baptists that don't believe today. They deny it. They tell you, well, there's no such thing as irresistible grace. And they tell you, well, God can take his best shot at you. He can do everything that he can do. But in the end, God has no control at all because everything is left up to you and the decision is all yours. And what they don't understand is that an unregenerate heart will never make right decisions. 
An unregenerate heart always resists the gospels of, gospel of Christ. And so there's no chance that he's ever going to come out of his darkness. But when you teach this like the Bible teaches it, and the way Paul puts it to us, the Holy Spirit has already begun to work in that person's life. The gospel is preached to him. The Holy Spirit is already working. And then that person is enabled to believe. And he believes because the intellect has been renewed. Now he understands the facts. So that's truly the difference in salvation that's man-centered and salvation that's God-centered. Faith is never self-generated. Darkness will never produce faith. Light dispels darkness and the light comes from God. And if you get that principle straight, you'll understand that only God can take the darkness of a person away. So this spiritual factory... Uh, faculty, I should say, is a renewed intellect. And that's what makes a Christian different from all the rest of the world that simply has intellect. His intellect has been renewed. And unless the person has a renewed intellect, he'll never understand the things of God or be redeemed from his depravity. Now, not only is the intellect renewed, but also the emotions are renewed. Now, one of the fallacies of today's religion is a reliance upon emotions. The charismatic movement especially focus on, focuses on the emotional aspect of feeling the spirit. And many of them will say that if you don't have some kind of an emotional outburst, if you don't have something like that that causes you to dance around and speak in tongues, then you simply have not had the salvation experience. But I want to tell you that emotions rise and emotions fall. And if our salvation depended upon our emotions... Most of us, when we get up in the morning, would not feel like saved people. We just wouldn't feel like we're saved. And when you depend upon emotions, that's the way you'll feel. But then when a person is really saved, there is an emotional attachment to Christ, no doubt about it. But it's not one that depends on highs and lows of, am I feeling good today or do I feel blue today? It's not associated with that at all. The emotion that comes in salvation is tied to the sensitivity of sin. Remember, we were studying the fourth chapter where Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And when you're a truly saved person, you sense that your sin grieves God and it disrupts your fellowship with him. So your attachment to Christ is always there. That never goes away. But the emotion of knowing that I'm God's child, I ought to express my appreciation and my gratitude. I ought to live for the one who saved me. That's going to make me turn from sin. And so I have it in my heart that what I want to do is to respect the honor of my family. I'm in God's family, and I want to live and honor my parent God. Well, a lost person doesn't have that kind of sensitivity. To him, call him a sinner, that doesn't mean anything to him. In fact, he may join in with you, and he may joke about it. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm the worst sinner there is. And he laughs about that. He has, he's not affected by it, and that's because no change has ever come He's emotionally dead. And if he ever does decide that he's going to limit sin in his life, he does that because of a selfish interest, not because he wants to please God or because he has a relationship with him, because he doesn't. There has to be a selfish motive involved. But then there's a third faculty that's been corrected. And folks, this is all important. This is extremely important. This one is the will. The will is changed. The will is renewed. Now, for centuries... Theologians would discuss the issue of the will, and most of them would write as if everybody understood what the will is, and nobody would ever explain what they mean by the will. In the 18th century, 
Jonathan Edwards did a lot of preaching on the will, a lot of writing on the will, and he began to really set this down and explain what the will is, and there are a lot of people like me and many others who have adopted Jonathan Edwards' view of the will. I don't have time to go into all that tonight. It's a huge subject and a very deep subject, but what will probably help us to understand the will in in a reasonable way or help us to understand it a little bit better is just a very simple definition, and that is the will is a person's or a man's strongest inclination at the time. That'll help you to understand it. The will is your strongest inclination at the time. Now, before we're saved, our strongest, strongest inclination is always against God. Now, even if it was possible that we knew better, we wanted to do, or, or uh, uh, said that we knew better, we always do what our will dictates at a given moment. And our will is always against God because our nature is against God. It's just like this. You know, uh, uh, if I decide tonight that I'm going to have a fried chicken dinner after, after church, I know that when I eat that, that that's going to send cholesterol to all different parts of my body. And I may be able to figure this out, that if I eat one chicken wing, that takes 2.7 minutes off my life. But you know what I'll do? I'll go and I'll eat that chicken wing anyway, because that's my strongest inclination. I want it and I'm going to take it. Well, with a person who's lost, when his will hasn't been changed, what influences him all the time is that nature and his desire to sin. Now, here's what happens. We argue all the time over the issue of free will. And maybe it would surprise you a little bit to hear me say, after all the other preaching that I've done, I will tell you that, yes, man's will is free. Man does have free will, but his free will only does one thing. It chooses against God. A man's free will never causes him to choose for God because we've already talked about his nature. His nature prohibits that, so he can't act outside of his nature. And in fact, John says, remember in John chapter 1, we are not born by our will. It's impossible for us to be born again by our will. So as long as a man is in the dark, he will never come to Christ. Not until... Not until something is done about his will that's too strongly inclined against God to enable him to believe. But then, when the will is renewed in regeneration, at that point, the strongest inclination that he has is to trust Christ. Well, does that mean that people get saved against their will? That God's out here saving people who don't want to get saved? I've already mentioned this thing about irresistible grace, didn't I? So is God saving people who don't want to be saved? Do you know that is, in fact, what the professor at West Coast Baptist College was arguing in his public article? And you'll forgive me if I mention this, but it was a public article, by the way, and it invites criticism. But in his public article, he said, but what about people who don't want to be saved? Well, whether you want to be saved or not, that's an issue of the will, isn't it? And when the will has been renewed, what will you want to do? you'll want to be saved. Every person who has a renewed will wants to be saved. So it's a moot point to ask, but what about people who don't want to be saved? If God hadn't taken care of that issue in the very beginning, nobody would ever get saved because nobody really wants to be saved. God has to change a person for that. So the faculty of the will is also corrected. Now, I need to move on very quickly so I can get this last point in. When there's a spirit of enlightenment, there's not only correction of faculties, but there's also production of fruit. 
Verse number 9 says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. I like what John MacArthur says about this. He says, There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Where there is life, there is evidence of life. Just as where there is death, there will be evidence of death. If you leave a dead body out in the sun for any length of time, it won't take very long before there's evidence of death. It'll be very apparent to you. Folks, dead sinners have been out there a long time, and there's evidence of their death. What is it? Unfruitful works of darkness, what Paul talks about in this chapter. But then on the other hand, if you take a seed and you plant that seed in good soil, it's watered by the rain, and then the sun comes and shine on it, it's bathed in the sun, what will happen? The seed begins to grow, and evidence that there's life will be apparent. Now, this is what happens when God regenerates a person. First, God showers him with the Holy Spirit, and then that person begins to bask in the sunlight of God's love. And when that happens, there will always be growth, and there will always be fruit. There are too many people out here that preach that what a person needs to do to be saved is pray a prayer, just pray a sinner's prayer, and you can be saved. And they go on, and they go on, and they go on, and they never give any evidence of all that they've actually repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. Don't ever think that you have eternal security, that you're saved, unless there's perseverance in your life. Fruit will be produced. Salvation is not a mechanical process. And some people think so. It's not a mechanical process of just giving assent to the facts. Salvation is moral and spiritual renewal. And always, when there's moral and spiritual renewal, there will also be fruit. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, where does that fruit come from? It comes from the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in our heart. That's the Holy Spirit. One commentator put it this way. He was talking about people who like to impose rules and restrictions, and they count that for their holiness and their sanctification. And there are many churches who teach that. They give you a long list of rules, and if you keep all of those rules, somehow you're going to be sanctified by keeping the rules. Well, this commentator said, he said, it's just like putting ornaments on a Christmas tree. He said, it's an artificial tree, or the tree is dead, and all you're doing is hanging ornaments on it. Ornaments are not fruit. A living tree bears fruit from within it. At home, we have this little water pot that's uh, sitting on on our kitchen counter. It's got these beautiful flowers in it. Sometimes I'll go over there and I'll catch myself starting to bend over and smell those flowers. But when I get close enough, I remember they're not even real flowers. They're silk flowers. They look real, but they're silk. You don't even have to put those things in water. Well, real fruit will come from a change that's on the inside. It'll be living. It comes from life that's abiding. Here's what Jesus said in John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. John 15, 4 is one of those verses about perseverance. And it's teaching us, when there is no fruit, there is no attachment to the vine. Now, I've told you that there will be growth. A Christian will always exhibit some growth. There will always be fruit. But you need to be aware that that doesn't mean that you get to instant maturity. You don't get to instant maturity when you get saved. It's a gradual process. So let me close with this thought tonight. Growth is gradual. Help water a sapling. Baby Christians are saplings. 
See, a farmer doesn't go out and plant the seed on Monday and harvest his crop on Tuesday. He waters, he carefully prepares, he takes care of it, he weeds the garden, and he waits there for gradual growth and development. And here's something that we need to learn about new Christians. Maybe they don't exhibit all of the, all of the uh, aspects and the fruit and things that we think that they ought to have. But we need to understand that their growth is going to be gradual. They're going to mature slowly. And what we need to do is help those people mature. Don't, don't cast them out and cast them down and talk bad about them because they don't, haven't reached your level of spirituality. Help that person as he grows. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, somebody, I don't even remember who this was right now, but they sent me this story, um, came from someone in the church, I don't know who, but I want you to listen to this, and I'm going to close with this tonight, and it, I think it very well illustrates the point I'm trying to make. So listen for just a moment. His name is Bill, he has wild hair, wears a t-shirt with holes in it, jeans, and no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for his entire four years of college. He is brilliant kind of profound and very, very bright. He became a Christian while attending college. Across the street from the campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. I would say Berean Baptist Church. Across the street from the campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. They want to develop a ministry to the students, but are not sure how to go about it. One day, Bill decides to go there. He walks in with no shoes, jeans, his t-shirt, and wild hair. The service has already started, and so Bill starts down the aisle looking for a seat. The church is completely packed, and he can't find a seat. By now, people are really looking a bit uncomfortable, but no one says anything. Bill gets closer and closer and closer to the pulpit, and when he realizes there are no seats, he just squats down right on the carpet. By now, the people are really uptight, and the tension in the air is thick. About this time, the minister realizes that way back in the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way toward Bill. Now, the deacon is in his 80s, has silver-gray hair, and a three-piece suit, a godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly. He walks with a cane, and as he starts walking toward this boy, everyone is saying to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's going to do. How can you expect a man of his age and his background to understand some college kid on the floor? It takes a long time for the man to reach the boy. The church is utterly silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes are focused on him. You can't even hear anyone breathing. The minister can't even preach the sermon until the deacon does what he has to do. And now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor... With great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships with him so he won't be alone. Everyone chokes up with emotion. When the minister gains control, he says, What I am about to preach, you will never remember. What you've just seen, you will never forget. Here's my comment. That's how you water a sapling. And that's what we need to do as the people of God. Take care of some of those immature Christians who don't yet know what we know. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for great truths that we learn in the book of Ephesians. Help us, Lord, to understand your word better and apply it to our lives. And may we surely know tonight, Lord, that there is no change that could ever have taken place in our lives if your Holy Spirit, through your love, your mercy, and your grace, had not reached down and touched us and made us different from what we are and taking us to a place where we need to go. 
Bless us in this invitation tonight, Lord. We praise you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please...